Honey, Riley Snow and Indigenous Cause. I'm Riley Snow, and you're listening to Red Surgeon. Hello, welcome to episode three of Red Surgeons. I wanted to to selfishly take this episode today um, to spend most of it. Instead, uh, folks who who have listened to the first two will know it's usually me talking about a subject in depth, doing having done some research on it, and then the second half we bring in experts and other folks whose ideas I want to hear about it, and then we kind of discuss. But this week, I decided I wanted to do something a little bit different. So. Today, I have brought in Dr. Pamela Pomoder, and I'm basically asking her for some advice, because right now we are recording at a university, a very big university, in fact, the second one of, if not the biggest landowner in the province next to the province. And with this podcast, as I venture to talk about decolonization, land back in really meaningful ways... What does that fact mean about where I'm sitting and recording right now? How do we reconcile our inevitable implication in colonial structures? And I think about this a lot because I, you know, for example, make my income almost exclusively from the academy, from writing, from media. I accept government grants. I I give talks to corporations from time to time. And while I do my best to ground myself in my communities, I'm accountable to that it's always on my mind. I know that I'm steeped in the colonial day in, day out. And so, I don't know, perhaps you've heard the saying um, that there's no free way to live under capitalism, that or uh, they're so consuming of a structure, of a global structure, that it's almost impossible to, to live outside of it. By that logic, I'd add, too, that there's no free way to live under colonialism, especially in, in this country, on this land. And that's the nature of the beast, is that they wanted to make it inescapable for us. Um, but that, of course, doesn't make institutional harms hurt less. That doesn't absolve us of accountability for harm we might perpetuate um, as actors within them. It does not stop us either from dreaming up different futures. Um, so where do we draw our lines? How do we exist and work within systems that are meant to be hostile to us? And can we? So um, to answer those types of questions, as I mentioned, I brought in the big guns. <laughs> uh, Dr. Pam Palmeter is a Mi'kmaq citizen, member of the Eel River Bar First Nation in northern New Brunswick. She is an author, a public intellectual, lawyer, specializing in Indigenous and constitutional law, and currently a professor and the chair in Indigenous governance at TMU, Toronto Metropolitan University. Hello. Hey, how's it going? I am so pumped to be on Red Surgeons. Honestly, this is fantastic. Yeah, I'm so glad you said yes to coming. And and for folks, um, at the point that this is, I guess, going out in the world, um, I'm assuming the episode I also recorded with you on your podcast, For Your Life, will probably be out in the world too. So you can- yeah, Tomorrow. It'll oh be my- out tomorrow. So it's definitely going to preempt and promote- Red Surgeons, right? That was kind of like the whole idea of it. So I can't wait till my interview with you 
drops tomorrow, which is Thursday, and then your Red Surgeons will come out and we can just like keep promoting each other all the way along. <laughs> I love it. It's so good. So there's a lot of, of Pam and Riley out there at this point. In the <laughs> so yeah, I mean, I, I, I introduced that sort of um, meaty topic there at the beginning. Um, and so yeah, you also are working in the academy. You're a lawyer. Um, you've been in, in all those same spaces I was kind of talking about. Um, and before I maybe ask you to answer all of the questions that we all have about it, solve the problems, please. Um, I was wondering what set you on that path, um, to, to, to be in this role and however you see it in this world that you're in now. Really good question. Hello, everybody. Quainine Deloisi Pampometer. I am from the sovereign Mi'kmaq nation, an unceded Mi'kma'ki, which most people know as the Maritimes, the best place in the world, of course. No offense to all the other territories. And my home reserve is Eel River Bar First Nation. And I'm a member there. My families are members. My kids are members. Um, and we have lots of close connections there. We're literally right on the Bay of Chalor, which attaches to the great big giant ocean. And I love that place. And um, yeah, so lawyer, professor, content creator, troublemaker, I guess some people call me. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but um, yeah, so my path wasn't set out on purpose. It's, it sounds weird, but it really, really wasn't. My vision of what I wanted to do for the rest of my life from the time I was a teenager was just stand on the front lines and defend our territories and resist colonization and advocate for our rights. And that's because I have a massive family of eight sisters and three brothers. Some of them have passed away, but the majority of them are older than me. And the majority of those were very politically active. So I grew up literally not knowing anything else, but who are we? What do we stand for? What, you know, what is, what's the job we have to do? How do we give back to our nation? Like it was all responsibility. We never had any conversation around rights. You know, when I was younger, it was just, if you're going to call yourself Mi'kmaq, this is what you have to do for your first nation, for your nation and all of that. So I went to, I don't know how many protests, marches and rallies with them, even when I didn't understand it all, community meetings, government negotiations, annual assemblies of a whole bunch of, you know, native nonprofit organizations. And that was my childhood. So by the time I finished high school, I was like, I'm, I'm not going to university. This is my life. I am just going to dedicate my life to my people and my nation. And, uh, you know, the, I had a conversation with my brother. So I, I told my brother, no, I, I don't want to go to university. What's the point of that? And he said, listen, I promise you, this is a promise I don't want to make, but I promise you, by the time you're out of university, all of these problems are still going to be here. You're not going to have missed your opportunity to guide our nation in a way, defend our nation, help our nation. But there's other things that you need to do. And, you know, because a lot of them, they, they didn't graduate high school or they didn't go to university or they don't have like specific technical knowledge or legal knowledge. You know, all of our knowledges are different. So they said, you need to go and get a university education, learn everything you can. 
about this, all of these institutions, the government, their laws, their policies, all of their weaknesses, because he said, here's the advantage we have. We know everything about them in, in, in detail. They know nothing about us because they don't care to know about us. So they don't know how we think. They don't know how we strategize. They don't know how strong we are. So he basically said, go and learn everything, weaponize it and use that to defend ourselves. It's like, okay, well, maybe I'll, I'll do that. You know, I, I never really saw it as I was going along the way, but ultimately it became clearer and clearer when I started sitting at negotiating tables and a government would, lawyer would say, what are you doing here? I was like, well, I'm here representing uh, this officer of Aboriginal people or native women in New Brunswick or whatever the issue was. I'd say, and what are your qualifications? Well, I'm kind of one of them. You know, <laughs> I'm actually a native person living in this territory. And sometimes they would tell me I couldn't sit at the table. Sometimes I wasn't allowed in the room. Sometimes they just completely discounted me or I wasn't allowed to speak at all. And that was very frustrating because, you know, when you're young, you don't have your armor built up yet, right? So if someone looks at you the wrong way, that's that can be upsetting. If someone's very angry or disrespectful to you, it's very upsetting. I don't know how many times I went home crying, saying, why do you put me on these committees? Why do you keep pushing me out there? I'm only a teenager. This sucks. But they said, because we're going to build up your armor now so that at the time when it's ready, you'll be able to go out into the world and that there's nothing they'll be able to do to you that will stop you from confronting them. So I was like, okay, it sucked at the time. I get it now. I get it now. Because now there's anything a government lawyer or someone in the media could say to me that's going to make me cry. Mm. You know, yeah. just for example. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of how, why I, how I started out. And kind of like the grounding, you know, how you have to be rooted in your traditional culture and ideas and beliefs and hopes and dreams before you go into those institutions. I think we have an advantage if we're grounded first. Mm. I think the people who were disconnected from all of these colonial laws and policies don't have that the same kind of armor as people who are grounded before they go in. And then it's a lot easier to just say, well, this all sounds good. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's interesting the way you, you frame that is different than the way I hear a lot of people who are maybe in similar roles talk about it. Right. Like there's a lot of people who really, I think, truly and, and I at one point did believe this. I don't anymore, but really, truly believe that like they can go and change the system from within. Yeah. Um, and the way you frame it, though, isn't like I went in there to change the system from within. It was to arm myself with um, these sort of, of tools to be able to to apply them to the larger fight. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that's really interesting. I, I don't know. I'm sure you must know a lot of people also who, who frame that like yeah. I'm going to change the system. And like the thing I always worry about is that, um, you know, that saying uh, you don't change the system. The system changes you. Um, and so, yeah, I, I wonder, you spoke a little bit about being grounded, but what is like your most, um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to hear about what you have to say about like, how do you stop yourself from, from getting sucked in? How do you stop yourself from having the system change you? Um, that is probably the hardest thing in the world to do because 
I was grounded in my family. I always have them for advice, you know, elders, community members. I was grounded in the knowledge I had, which is, you know, people often ask me, why on earth did you go and get four university degrees? And it was because at the time people kept saying I wasn't, I wasn't an expert enough or I didn't have this qualification or that qualification whenever I sat around these tables. So I naively thought if I just go and get all the same qualifications, they're going to see me as an equal and we'll have a better conversation. And they didn't. So I was like, okay, if I get more qualifications than them, then they won't be able to argue. But I was chasing a, a rainbow that it was just non-existent. There are some co colonized governments and thinkers that it won't matter what you do. They will always look down at you and think you're not good enough. And then there's going to be the racists and the misogynists and the haters and everything else. So then I was like, jeepers, what have I been doing? So I had lots of talks to my family. So what's going on here? And they're like, don't do it for that reason. Do it, you know, just rem remember you're building your armor. You're weaponizing this knowledge. They don't know anything about you, but you're going to know everything about them. So I was like, okay, 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 okay. So, I mean, I worked at Justice Canada. You know, I wasn't a litigator. I was an advisory. I thought, all right, I'm, I'm going to work on my grad work while I'm here temporarily. And Justice Canada is, is, you know, the heart, I guess, the heart or the sword of the colonizer. I think it's more the, the sword of the colonizer. And not just that, but I worked on all the legal issues related to the Indian Act. So I worked very closely with Indian Affairs. And then sometimes I would go over and be a senior director at Indian Affairs to manage you know, additions to reserves, wills and estates, all of that thing. So I just kept going back and forth, back and forth. And I did very much think, well, maybe I can make some changes. Maybe I can. You know, you always get beaten down when you, when you can't. But mm -hmm. there's always that hope that you can. Yeah. Um, when things started to go south, which didn't take very long. I was always getting in trouble for doing things I wasn't supposed to do, saying things I'm not supposed to say, hanging out with people I'm not supposed to hang out with, basically native people. Um, I was like, how is this going to go? How, how is this going to go? Because this is literally the opposite of my beliefs. This is literally the opposite of what I'm working for. And yes, I know I'm supposed to be, you know, gathering intel. I'm a scout of some kind, some kind of native scout in this army, but it starts to wear on you. Mm. So you can be all tough. But if you hear every day, every day, every day, litigators and Justice Canada saying, we're going to get them, we're going to screw them, we're going to win this case there, you know, like always just always being surrounded by cowboys who want to get rid of the Indians. That's difficult. Mm. What's worse, I think, so that's very identifiable and you can say, well, that, you know, that's awful. What's worse is when you're working with good people who are, you know, great in every other way, they're great parents, they're great friends, they're well-intended mm. and they, the, the way they try to convince you that, hey, listen, you know, third party intervention at Indian Affairs, that's not bad when we appoint a third party manager or co-manager. We're trying to help the First Nation. And here's all the ways we're trying to help so they don't get into trouble. And so that kind of thinking can seep in. And then you can say, yeah, okay, this is just, this is like good. They just don't know it's good. Mm -hmm. And that's how you know you're kind of slipping over into their thinking. And it's not until, you know, you meet with the First Nation and they put you right back. And it's like, oh, yeah, okay. That's, yeah, of course, that's the case. 
So I really worry about people who aren't grounded first, who know how to identify what's right and what's wrong in that kind of relationship being, well, being sucked in, I guess that's not a nice way of putting it, but I know a lot of people who happily, even as native people work for these institutions because they really believe that they're trying to help. And I think the individuals are, I think the institution just totally prevents them from doing that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think like what to me is even um, like sadder about it or like is scary about it maybe is that like, for example, I know um, if I'm going to give a talk, uh, like one of the things is, like I said, I talk to like corporations, but like I have a rule to not talk to any sort of like um, resource extraction or anybody invested <laughs> <Me> in <too. laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or churches, police organizations. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, I'm like, and part of the reason why is because I know like, even though I could rationalize it to myself and I know people who do in many different ways of saying like, um, well, I'm not actually working for them. It's just in a contract. I'm going to say what I want to say. And it's going to be like radical. And I'll even say the bad thing, like, and show them. And I'm like, but then they also still at the end of the year on their reports, get to like slap your face on it and say that they like talk to indigenous people. Like there's, um, even if you're not going in, I think, I, I think there's just a danger of the way that, uh, colonial institutions will like co-opt your identity, your voice, um, yeah. who you are and what you represent as a way to legitimize their, their colonial presence, you know? Um, and like, that's, that's scary to me. You know what? It, it really is. And then at the same time, I always admire the people who go in knowing the problem, spend their life trying to fight the problem, even though they're not being successful, because that's how much they love our people. They like we all have a different way and idea of how we're going to help our people, how we're going to decolonize, how we're going to get land back and all of that stuff. You know, some are on the more radical side, you know, like human rights. So totally radical. Um, but then then there's the people who honestly say, I, I think this is the way. And who's to say it's not the way? Who's to say that after sustained years and larger numbers of people and more capacity, that that won't be at least part of the way? Mm -hmm. So I think we just have to really understand that people are doing things for different reasons. And how do we support each other in that, even if we don't agree um, on, you know, what the ultimate path forward is? And also take into account, like, we have to forgive ourselves for being colonized genocide is not a lifestyle it's not a choice we have absolutely no other alternative but to live in this genocidal state do we have to live by all of the like economic systems governing systems laws and policies that have been created without us having any input like that's not going to go away because we have decolonized thinking, right? It's great to have decolonized thinking, but if you're living in a colonized situation, you you kind of have to deal with that. We literally navigate the minefield of genocide every single day. So we have to be able to forgive ourselves for that. How do we live in a capitalist society? Well, you have to have a job to make enough money to get a house, shelter, and pay for food. But if we have this you know, old standard that we must be decolonized of everything that even touches colonization, we are putting an incredible and impossible standard on ourselves. 
you know, so short of living in the bush and hunting and fishing, which there's still some people that do that, but on a full-time basis, then how are we going to get along? How are we going to protect our people? How are we going to rebuild our nations? Understanding that we're in a situation that we're probably going to be trapped in for quite some time. We can't just ignore it. Mm -hmm. So let's forgive ourselves. It should be okay for you to go and do a presentation to anybody and use that money to support yourself or to support your family or to support land defenders on the ground to continually build warriors. I mean, we're basically creating a war chest even if you work at Indian Affairs, even if you work at Justice Canada, and God forbid, even if you work with the fossil fuel companies, you know, think about it as a war chest. I know not everyone thinks about it that way, uh, but I, I see it that way. I, I can't ignore the fact that I hear cars driving by my house. That was a situation that's created to trap us. Why don't we use that, weaponize that, create our war chest of warriors and resources? and education and skills and everything else. And then someday we get our reckoning and we're working towards that every day. When it comes, we're ready. Yeah. I, I, it reminds me of that, a good quote I like. I sometimes often think of it in warlike maybe terms as well. Um, but uh, all tactics, all battlegrounds. Um, and I, I thought about this when, um, especially I was thinking about like, you know, elected officials and we have so many more now than ever, at least in Canada, um, mm -hmm. of indigenous people as like, say MPs. Um, and I really thought about it and I was like, you know, can I say, or, or should I say ever that like the work that they do there is not, uh, meaningful, that it's not part of, um, you mm -hmm. know, the struggle. No, I don't think I can say that. Um, mm -hmm. and I can also like, I think at the best way, though, um, maybe it's like, uh, and I heard you say this once, I think, to me on the agenda <laughs> about like um, managing expectations is part of it, too, though, um, about like what can we accomplish in these spaces? And like if all you do is harm reduction, if all you do as an MP, an Indigenous MP is vote against anti-Indigenous bills and always talk about these things in the House and do that sort of work, um, that that is that's a, a very attainable, powerful um, expectation as well in, in that work. Um, do you think you can revolutionize and like dissolve Canada from parliament? Probably not. Right. But like, it's about, <laughs> that's what I guess is I took from it at least when you mentioned that. Yeah. No, it's true. When you think about it, there is nothing in human society that's ever been accomplished. That's good for people or the planet ever without sustained social conflict. And I'm not talking about violence or war, killing people. I'm talking about sustained social conflict. We see social conflict nowadays as like violence or gun violence or war, or police violence, but conflict is actually good. Like conflict as in, I don't agree with you. You don't agree with me. I'm going to take action to protect my rights when you're violating my rights, marching in the streets, educating people, calling out, you know, uh, politicians. It's basically being in opposition. So social conflict is being in opposition. We've been taught in society and in schools and everything to don't be adversarial. You know, be nice, get along, trying to find a way to come to the middle. Obviously, that doesn't fit with genocide. You you don't come to the middle in genocide because it's either genocide or it's no genocide. So if you apply that across the board and really, really think about it, 
then every single thing that we do to try to make things better, you know, to uh, decolonize, to get land back, to seek reparations, to advocate, all of these good things, as well as the resistance, the prevention, the stopping, the protesting, all of those things get the job done. It's different people doing different things at different times. But think about this. If women did not continually engage in social conflict of all kinds, but we waited until men were unanimous that women were people and that we should have human rights, you and I wouldn't be talking about this right now. Because when would men ever be unanimous about, <laughs> especially white men, right? About recognizing anyone's rights or equality or voice. And so think about it the same way here. If I wait until every Canadian is educated on Native issues and agree with us, I'm going to be waiting billions of years until the planet doesn't exist anymore. The key is in all of those social conflicts, whether it's civil rights, black rights, indigenous rights, women's rights, planetary rights, environmentalism, it's hundreds of years of sustained action, tons of seeds that are planted that might not grow this season or the next season. But we've been normalized to not be adversarial, not be in conflict, and we're instant gratification people. So if I go to a protest tomorrow and the government doesn't change its mind, well, screw this, that didn't work. <laughs> but we don't know that if that worked or not, because we don't know what the long-term results of that are going to be. We don't know what that has inspired in someone else. And so all of these things we've accomplished, even just human rights, comes from social conflict. Yeah. And so I think we need to embrace that and with one another. You know, our, many of our traditions, like I don't know your traditions, but it's always, you know, be respectful to your elders, be respectful to the leaders, be respectful to your aunties. And that's been co-opted by settler society to mean don't speak, don't express your concerns, don't say no, don't be adversarial, don't create problems. If you've got nothing to say, don't say anything at all. Like I'm sure people have heard this before. That's not our people. I mean, it's certainly not Mi'kmaq people. We always used to use our voice and stand up for people and stand up for our nation and say no. But the whole colonial infrastructure in Canada has been orchestrated around Indigenous peoples have the right to say yes to colonial issues, but we don't have a right to say no. I mean, that's literally embedded in the law. So we've just got to start exercising that right more and more. We have the right to say no. We have the right to speak up. And when the National Chief of the Assembly of First Nations is doing something that's going to destroy or impair our rights or the rights of kids, you're damn right I'm going to talk about it, even if it creates conflict, even if someone says, oh, you should never do that. You should never show divisions in public. I'm like, then no one will ever know that we don't agree with hurting children's rights. And, and what does that accomplish? All that does is allow that person to continue. It's like passive acquiescence uh, for the sake of getting along. And that, that just hurts us. And I know that's not our fault. That's what residential schools taught, day schools, K to 12 education taught us, society teaches that. But we just need to embrace the social conflict more and, and see the benefit that comes from it. Mm, yeah, I really love that that point about like yeah dissent within us I I mean I think that's so much of like 
that shows that we're alive, right? Like that we're not all yeah. just like going along our day and whatever one of us says, we're all like, yeah, I guess that's fine. And <laughs> don't have competing dreams for futures for for any of those things. Like you're right. I think The Descent is is a show that there's a heartbeat there. Um, yeah. So and think about it this way. So sometimes like during Idle No More, when we were organizing all of these protests and rallies, media would ask me, you know, isn't that depressing? Doesn't that just get you down that, you know, we're in this con you're in this constant protest mode. You're always trying to challenge and government doesn't move. And I'm like, no, that's literally where I get all my hope where I get all my inspiration, where I get all my passion. You know, what would be the most devastating thing for any one of us to see no one speaking up, no one in the streets, no one trying to address injustice. They're all just like, eh, that's when it's over. But so long as there's people trying to protect the land, trying to protect the water, whether it's successful now or a hundred years from now, that that's the hope. The devastation is in no one caring. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm like, I feel like I'm full of quotes today, but yeah, the opposite, <laughs> the opposite of, of love, not being hate, being indifference. Right. Um, yeah. And so maybe on that note, uh, I want to ask you in a, in a, cause I think like part of the thing I have found in like what give, gets me through all of, uh, you know, when I'm like in my spiral of being like, I'm part of the system and I don't know, <laughs> is that I like really try and um, step aside and like make room um, for joy. And I, and I, and I think that as much as indigenous resentment and anger and, mm. and all of those things are, um, powerful tools that we have and powerful protests. So is indigenous joy and, um, you know, making joy for ourselves in a world that tells us continuously not to be. Um, <laughs> and so I, I just wanted to, yeah, maybe give a little bit of space for you to say like, mm -hmm. what are, where are the ways that like you deliberately curate that joy for yourself? Um, as I, maybe you think about it this way, maybe though, I definitely think about it as an act of resistance. Um, but yeah. Well, you know, that's a good question because I am, full disclosure, a workaholic. I can't help it. That's just the way I've been. I try to deal with it. But it's because it's not like work. It's our lives. It's our future. And then when you have kids, it's like, oh my goodness, now I have to amp it up because it's my kids. And now I have a grandbaby on the way. I'm going to be a grandmother. And it's like, oh my gosh, I've just got so much more to do. Or look at what's happening to these women over here. Look at what's happening to the kids in foster care. What's happening with prison? It's, there's just so much to do. And, you know, obviously never enough time. Um, I, I wouldn't say that that gets me down. Mm -hmm. I feel inspired by all the people doing this work and resisting and the land defenders on the ground. So that actually kind of fills up my spirit. And I see it in a different way because my elders always told me, anger, frustration, despair, um, confusion, happiness, joy, sadness. These are all feelings. They're all emotions. And they've told me, what are emotions? They're forms of energy. It's how you direct that energy. We, I think in general, have directed our pain and sorrow and trauma inward. You know, so it's, we punish ourselves in ways that we don't even recognize, or we try to anesthetize ourselves because the pain is so awful. The elders said what they would like to see the new generation do is take that 
emotion, which is energy, and just put it into something. And ever since they told me that, now whenever I get angry that some politician has done something so racist or so horrible, I'll just be so angry I'll write an op-ed. Mm. Or I'll be so angry that I'll, you know, call up my friends, okay, let's organize a protest. If the anger goes into something. Mm. Um, but at the same time, we can't forget that all of these emotions, all of these forms of energy impact us in different ways. And so we need the the joy stuff, the the happy stuff, the fun stuff, the ridiculous stuff. And I think the thing that saves a lot of us is that as Native people, we we have such a funny sense of humor. We are able to make fun of each other and ourselves and laugh about the stupidity, the stupid things that politicians say. I mean, there's memes and, you know, comedic parodies of things all the time now. We've been doing that for hundreds of years. I mean, we've <laughs> literally been telling jokes and making fun, you know, the insider native jokes and all that stuff. That makes you feel a part of something good when you know the inside joke. When you can watch the movie Prey, you know, the latest Predator movie, and you know all the Native people at certain parts are going, yeah, fucking yeah, get him, you know? Yeah. It's it's like you want the Predator to just destroy all of those colonizers who were, you know, trying to hurt the Native people. That Being a part of that, um, I think it's it's really uplifting. And, and like talking to people like you, it's like, yes, there's younger people doing this 10 times better than we are. Or, you know, working with someone like Cindy Blackstock, who is just joy. She just emanates joy. She goes to court with cookies, baked <laughs> for all the people in the audience. Like, I'm not like that, but she is. So we, it's, I think if we just value one another and also take time. So my kids remind me, yeah, 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 mom, you can say all that, but you must get out of that seat and get out of the house. Mm. So my son makes me go, you know, motorcycle riding across the country or, dirt biking on the trails, doing jumps or walking my dog. Like I was telling you before this started, <laughs> I, if I didn't have my, my puppies, I would probably never leave this seat. So the fact that I have to go take him for a walk, go take the other puppies for a walk, just be there and cuddle him and enjoy him and, and eat dinners with my family and go and visit my family and go to powwows and go to ceremony and, do all of those things, that's, that's what really, you know, fills you back up, I think, at least me for me anyway. Yeah, no, I, I think that's apt. And like almost everything you said, too, I'll point out. Um, and I, it's so counter to the way, um, uh, you know, settler society talks about like either caring for yourself or joy or all these things. It's like, yeah. don't have a bubble bath <laughs> or like, I don't know, like go and like, you know, you do you, but like so much I think of our healing does come in collectivity and it comes yeah. um, about being with one another and thinking alongside each other and yeah, mm -hmm. not having it, all those experiences, just living in our individual body yes. out there. So I, I totally agree. And I also, okay, so I wanted to start to to close and I wanted to ask you, I'll ask it now because I, I wonder, I feel like it could expand up into a whole other thing, but um, it what is a conversation, and it doesn't have to be about, um, you know, working within systems and, you know, self mm. and, you know, community and stuff like that necessarily, but um, what is one conversation that you think um, that we either need to be having with ourselves more um, or that you think is underserved? Um, mm. and what is something very pressing, I guess, that we should be talking to each other about? 
Well, I'm, I'm glad you asked this because we're always engaged in two conversations. There's the one with Canada and the public advocacy and, you know, what needs to change and, and you know, the messages we give Canadians. We've, we're somewhat restricted in the sense of we, we don't want to have hard conversations that could potentially be public because then Canadians will be like, aha, I knew you guys were always dysfunctional or I knew you guys were always corrupt or, you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's been this. I guess, natural protective mechanism that we have to, you know, maybe we shouldn't publicly challenge each other and hold each other accountable. I think we have to do several things. One, we have to forgive ourselves for being colonized and all the ways in which we have colonized thinking and all the ways in which we have traumatic or colonized behaviors and be the soft space to fall for our people. Take our people where they're at. There's nothing that upsets me more than when I see someone go into the community and say, I'm, I'm decolonized <laughs> and you're a wrong thinker. So maybe the other person is doing something that's, uh, that's harmful or supports Indian affairs or something, but maybe they don't know about it. I think we really need to forgive ourselves that that's exactly what colonization has done to us. This is not like a choice we've ever had. And we don't know how people have been raised. We don't know all of the influential factors. So I think setting aside harm, like you always need to give yourself distance from anyone who's going to cause you harm, physical, mental, or otherwise. I mean, that's totally valid. We all need to be safe. Um, but I think we just got to be a, a lot less judgmental. Really look at, in our heads and say, where is this judgment coming from? Is it an insecurity I have? Am I just incorporating a settler standard? You know, so when I, when you look at someone who's homeless or impoverished, you know, I hear some of our own native people say, ah, oh, that guy should get off his ass. And I'm thinking that's exactly what society has told us to say, that it's their, we're at fault for being victims of genocide and that it's all we have to do is just make this conscious choice, I guess, and, and everything's going to be fine. So and not even knowing that you're getting that from, you know, colonized thinking, that you're judging your own. And and why are you judging that? Is it just that you don't know? Is it that you have some kind of, you know, deep-seated hatred for your own people? Are you ashamed? Does it bother you? Does it impact you in some way? Because um, it happens on the other side, too. So you see someone who's successful, maybe they started their own business and they're able to buy themselves a car and build themselves a nice home and take their kids on trips to powwows all over the Canada and the United States. And we look at them and say, a oh, sellout, that's a sellout. Like, you know, if you were down with the people, you wouldn't have more than anybody else because in our traditional ways, you know, no one had more than anybody else, which is really just a misunderstanding of what our traditional ways are. And so that's equally judgmental. And so you say, oh, that person's bad. They're not good. Society has done that. We're, we're never good enough if we're impoverished, right? We're the Indian problem, we're the Indian burden. But if we do manage to navigate genocide and navigate these systems and are able to support ourselves and others, then that's somehow some kind of Aboriginal evil elite. And so you can trash those people too. In Canadian society, we can't win. There's nothing we can do to be the perfect Indian except not be here. And so I say in the forgiving of ourselves for being colonized, we need to shed all of those 
expectations and all of those judgments that we impose on people, you know, like, oh, that guy's just an addict. If he would stop drinking beer, he would be, you know, fine. Well, do you know what trauma he's been through? Like the people who fight to live every day, those are warriors, right? Think about the multiple overlapping traumas that we go through every single day. And the person who's homeless on the street, making his way every day, suffering abuse and degradation and physical assault, and he takes beer or drugs or something to, to stop that pain so that he can live another day, so that maybe his hope of getting out of this will actually happen. And that's warrior spirit. Those are the people you want as part of your nation. And so I just think, you know, the, the forgiving ourselves, the recognizing that none of this is our fault, we're responsible for our actions, so we can't hurt people, and we have to distance ourselves from those people. But we can't just pretend those people don't exist. And I, and I think we really need to think about each other differently that way and call out things that aren't right. So if there are parents that are horribly abusive to their children or selling them in human trafficking rings, yeah, that's an apprehension right there. Maybe not to a white family, obviously, but we have to be empowered and recognize that we can go and take that child and say, no, you can't have this child. You're, hurt, you're hurting this child. But Sometimes we're too black and white, you know, Canada, you can't apprehend your children. I agree. But what about the kids that are in dangerous situations? You also have to have a solution to protect those people. So I really just think it's a combination of all of those things. And I think we do judge. I mean, I haven't yet met a native person on Twitter who hasn't been trashed for being a lawyer. Oh, you had to swear allegiance to the king. Oh, you work in acad academia. Oh, you're part of this social institution. You drive a car. Oh, you're on the highways. Like, tell me a native person who isn't in a colonized situation, not doing something colonized. You may be working for your band. That's colonization. That came from the Indian Act. So if, if we're just all about judging, we're never going to get down to the good business of helping one another. And I think we just need to stop judging each other and be the soft space to fall for people who really, really need it. I know people get annoyed when you see that same person come to the band community meeting and they're the same person that makes accusations and asks questions and demands to see the audit and everyone's like, oh, this person's so annoying. But what I see is someone who cares. They're, they're crying, they're screaming, they're yelling, they're, but they never give up. They go and go and go and go and say, no, I want that audit. I want to know what you're doing. Is this for the best for our people? Maybe annoying, but that's the person who probably cares the most. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. I'm like, I'm so glad I decided to end on that question. I like, I, tell me if this sounds fair. These are three things I'm going to take away from your uh, last comment. So one is that um, uh, it's... Uh, it's not fair and it's it's not in any way helpful to to tell somebody that they have um or are surviving colonization wrong um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> two, it's a it's a real interrogation of i think a disposability politics that lives within each of us about how easy it's much easier to dispose of one another um and to write off than it is to do hard work um within ourselves and within our relationships mm -hmm. And then third um, is that the fight is the people like, you know, we can we can sometimes think that uh, it's like this 
decolonized world that we're building to where our nations are sovereign again and all those things. And of course, I think that's all part of it. Yeah. But all of that is nothing without um, us and our people there to to embody it. And so that's why all of those things are so important. Um, yeah, is, is how I kind of interpreted that. You got it. <laughs> like literally you got it you know i think about all the people who say oh you're so colonized because you work with chiefs and counselors and i'm like wait a second uh there are people they're put in an impossible situation like why wouldn't i work with those people of course i don't work with ones that are doing harm like purposeful harm but to me it's just as important to work with the grandmothers as it is the elected leaders and the traditional leaders and the land defenders and the academics, like all of us, we're all in this. So why wouldn't we work with one another? Yeah. All battlegrounds, all tactics. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, Sydney Blackstock calls it mosquito advocacy. Oh. So you just, in, you know, just nonstop, you know how mosquitoes are and you can't get rid of them. And they're just, <laughs> it's not a big attack. They're little tiny annoying attacks, but you know, they, it just keeps going. And eventually we will win. Mm. yeah okay eventually we will win is like my perfect i think (laughs) (laughs) so oh miigwech so much for being here today and for chatting with me and for everything that you've done to help um promote red surgeons for this i'm so excited for this to finally um live outside of our computers and (laughs) yeah 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 brains um and i i you're welcome back every time Oh, every time. Oh gosh, that's even better than any time. Every time. That's fantastic. You know, anytime, mm-hmm. literally anytime, because we're all in this together. And thank you so much for having me. And I am so pumped about Red Surgeons. And not only does it have a cool name, but it's <laughs> kick ass. I think this is going to help lead the warrior movement. Oh, yay. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. I am so appreciative. <laughs>